This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. It is such a pleasure, always an honor, to have Mary Frances Berry um, at, at Politics and Prose. Uh, I think you all know she's going to be talking tonight about her new book. It's called History Teaches Us to Resist, How Progressive Movements Have Succeeded in Challenging Times. And I just want to say, um, personally, uh, but I think this must apply to some of you, too, that I think it's especially poignant to have her here on this particular day. Uh, this is a day on which I think uh, we all know um, these fantastic, amazing, strong, brave, courageous, fabulous, eloquent, passionate young people, students across the country walked out of their schools today in protest of gun violence and demanding change in a way that we haven't seen that generation do in a long time. What an inspiration they are to us, and of course, just so topical at the moment to have Mary Frances here to talk about this very, very subject. Um, so I think we, we can all uh, be confident that there is no better moment for us to hear from and learn from Mary Frances Berry, although she was saying that maybe even right after the election, the, the election we might have needed it more, but I don't know. I kind of feel like every day it's like uh, an hourly, if not minute by minute, uh, necessity. Um, now, you know she is here, of course, because she's an author. She just wrote this wonderful book. Uh, she's written a dozen books total. She's a scholar and teacher. She's the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought at uh, Penn, University of Pennsylvania. She's, of course, a renowned public servant who served in, I think, five presidential administrations? Only five? What are you waiting for? I guess this one wouldn't be one. Never, never mind. We won't go there. Um, Thank God, only five. Uh, she, she has long been and continues to be an advocate and activist. Of course, she was a great uh, voice opposing the Vietnam War, an unequivocal and unwavering champion, protector and defender of civil rights and human rights. And I think lastly, and perhaps most importantly, she is a moral conscience for our country. Uh, bringing to bear all these experiences and perspectives that she's gained in, in the roles I just mentioned, um, and always able to remind us of our challenges, our obligations, and also our opportunities as people living in a democratic and pluralistic society. Um, so she, I think of her as truly our North Star uh, in, in these uh, times like this that are so difficult, and they are difficult. Um, and I'm not just talking about the venom and divisiveness of partisan politics, but really of what we are now watching, which is a systemic, intentional assault on our bedrock democratic values and institutions, free speech, the rule of law, separation of powers, human rights, basic civility and decency, and even the nobility of public service. So the question then becomes, how do we get through these difficult times? How do we remain hopeful? How do we remain feeling like there's a possibility of change? And I think the first way is to read this book. Um, and uh, History Teaches Us to Resist is, is really, it, it's such a great, great, great addition for this moment because what Mary Frances does in here is to give us examples of progressive movements, large and small, some obvious, some not so obvious, that really help explain how these movements have shaped and mapped out the trajectory of our country for the better. And you know, she reminds us of something very important, especially at moments like this, which is that resistance is hard. It requires incredible sacrifice. It can be extremely frustrating. Um, it may not achieve our hoped-for goals uh, entirely or immediately, and yet these movements 
are always, always, always worth fighting for. So thank you so much for the book. Thank you for being here. And thank you for all that you've done for, for and we'll continue to do. We, we love having you. Um, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, well, I know here, maybe I shouldn't be so short, and some who I don't, but some who, who have been with me in various struggles uh, in which I've been engaged uh, over the years. Um, what I want to do is spend uh, some time, a few minutes, talking, and then have some Q&A, because this is a good time for me to come, because I need to hear what you think is important about uh, this moment and about movements in general. And some of you have been involved in social movements of various kinds. And you've been involved in some of the movements, some of you have been involved in some of the movements I've been uh, in. So in a sense, this book is about what we did, those of us who did it, <laughs> and how we did it, and what we learned from it. And I wrote it, first tell you why I wrote it. I had, did not intend to write this book. My editor insisted that I write this book, uh, and uh, her whole point was that uh, it was right after the election, and she said, "You, this book is needed, and you know how to write it because you've not only been a scholar and you are, and a lawyer and all that stuff, human rights activist, but you were in some of these movements, and so you know what happened from the inside out, and." People need to be reminded of what we did. And in fact, since I wrote the book, some of the people who uh, wrote uh, blurbs uh, for it, like Sherilyn Eiffel at uh, LDF, who said to me, you know, I didn't remember that I did all this stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm sure Ralph Neese doesn't remember all the stuff. Maybe he remembers all the stuff he did. But anyway, uh, people don't. Maybe Katie doesn't remember the stuff about the whole disabilities rights move. I'm sure she does. But uh, uh, Sherilyn said, wow, I really did. I was there. Uh, some of this, I need to be reminded. And I was reminded myself. So I agreed after talking to my friends and colleagues and asking everybody whether I should write it, that I would. And so I did. And the other reason why I wrote it is because I had a number of speaking engagements right after the election all set up. And the places where I went, they had planned to have celebrations and talk about you know, what we were going to do when Hillary got in office and this and that and the other. And by the time I got there, everybody was crying. Uh, and what they were in mourning. And so what they did is uh, at the dinner before I would speak, they would want to tell me each one individually how bad they felt uh, and then have me comment on how bad they felt. And by the time I got through about five of those, uh, I thought, well, you know, you need to do something. My mother used to say, people should get up off your do-nothing stool, she called it, and go out and do something. Uh, and maybe writing the book would do that. Uh, so then the question was what to put in it. Um, and I thought I would start with the March on Washington movement of A. Philip Randolph in 1941, because most people don't know anything about it and because it was a clear example that progressives sometimes have to fight a friendly, quote unquote, president. Uh, people always think of, you know, bad, you know, this terrible president, we gotta do something, a politician. But FDR was supposedly a friendly president, 
but in fact, uh, he refused to end discrimination in the defense industry so that blacks could get jobs. And A. Philip Randolph, who was overlooked by almost everybody, and who was the leader of the first uh, union uh, black uh, uh, official in the AFL-CIO, and the first black union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and was many things besides, uh, was the guy who got the idea to organize a march on Washington. There had been marches on Washington before. There had been lots of marches on Washington. Most of them, unfortunately, haven't achieved anything. Uh, except they had a march um, in terms of policy. And I'm really interested in policy changes more than I am in the faces of people in high places. I mean, that's not what I'm really interested in. And so A. Philip Randolph got the idea that he could do this. He met uh, with other leaders several times with FDR, and FDR refused to do it. And finally, FDR apocryphally is supposed to have said to him, well, you must make me do it. Uh, Joe Ryle uh, has never confirmed, didn't confirm, that that actually happened. But it's the story that goes, make me do it. But A. Philip Randolph told people that he said, make me do it. And so he mobilized people all across the country. And when FDR and Eleanor sent out people to find out what was going on, they found out that, in fact, people were coming to Washington. They were ready to go. They had managed to do it. And logistically, it was much harder than what we do now at that time because there was segregation and there were all these issues and problems, but they did. And when they found out, he used leverage. That's an example of using leverage against a uh, friendly, quote, uh, unquote, president, and he changed the policy. Uh, he was made to do it. So that tells you. But you got to, ha it has to be a credible threat. And that was the first time that a march, or at least the threat of a march, made a change in federal uh, social policy before there had been marches and they hadn't done that. So I put that one in as an example of, a of that. And then I moved on to the Vietnam War. And I did that one, and that one was very painful uh, to me. Some of you may have been in the anti-war movement. It was painful to me because I was at Michigan as a student, and I was very much involved. And uh, I decided that I wanted to, and I got really involved after Martin Luther King made his Riverside uh, uh, speech uh, about the connection between the war and the poverty and the economy. Um, and um, so I decided that I wanted to go to Vietnam to see the war for myself. And the question was, how could I do that? <laughs> and so I wrote to the Defense Department uh, we didn't have email then, and said, uh, how do I get, I want to go to Vietnam and see what's going on, and I'm a student uh, at Michigan, and how do I do that, can I do that? And they wrote back and said, no, you can't do it unless you're a reporter. So I thought, I, then I wrote back and said, well, how do you get to be a reporter? And they said, well, you have to have 100,000 subscribers to the print thing that you write for. And so I went over to the Michigan Daily newspaper uh, and Richard Berkey, who uh, was at the New York Times for a long time, I ran into at a reception at, uh, at your house, actually. And he told me that he read the articles I wrote in the Michigan Daily at that time. Anyway, um, I said, okay, and I said to the Daily, you want a war correspondent? Right from the front. <laughs> and they said, sure, we don't have any money. What do you want us to do? They wrote a letter. And then I went around to little towns in Michigan and got people to write letters saying that I was their war correspondent. And I sent them off to the Defense Department. And they sent me my credentials, which I still have. 
And they told me that you can go anywhere you want to in Vietnam. They didn't embed people then. Uh, and you can hitch a ride with anybody, go anywhere. We don't care. Just be safe. And they said, you have to get there yourself. And when you're out in the field, you can stay with the officers. We don't know what you do when you're in Saigon. And then I needed some money because I didn't have a plane ticket uh, and you couldn't walk to Vietnam. So the papers and the people on campus raised money to give me a ticket so I could go. And I went and I was on the plane and there were all these real reporters on the plane. And they were amazed and they just thought it was so funny that I was trying to be a reporter. Uh, they were big time uh, reporters. And I got there and I went out in the field. I went down and got my gear and they assigned a sergeant to me, a rather overweight sergeant who huffed and puffed behind me as I walked and said, we're doing that because we don't want you killed. And he's gonna keep you from getting killed because Dickie Chappelle, who was a Life magazine uh, photographer who run the, won the Pulitzer, had been there as a woman, an American woman there, and she had stepped on a landmine and she was killed. And so they said, we don't want you killed, so this guy's gonna see you safe. And he was supposed to follow me. He couldn't, because he couldn't keep up with me. Uh, and so uh, that experience in Vietnam, which had its tragedies, because I was everywhere in the country, from down at the bottom all the way up, and was in all kinds of military engagements and other things, and met lots of uh, soldiers, some of whom, whom I mentioned in the chapter. But the chapter's not about me so much, but it's about how the anti-war movement succeeded. And in fact, getting we got Johnson to uh, resign, and I then went away from thinking about it after that. I was there in the summer of 1967. I went away from thinking about the war because it was so depressing and I had all the, I didn't know it, but it was like that post-traumatic, whatever they call it, about the war. And I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to remember any of it. So I went away and didn't think about it for years. So when I started writing this chapter, I had to catch up the loose ends. And that's when I discovered what you already knew probably, which is that Nixon had monkey wrenched the process, the peace process, and that we had succeeded because we, along with the military, had forced uh, North Vietnam to come to the peace table. And when Nixon found out that that was true in 1968 during the election, uh, that he sent some emissaries through H.R. Haldeman, you might have heard of, to go and as he said, monkey wrench the process. Tell them that if they'll just hold off and not come to the peace conference that's set up that they'd agreed to, uh, that when I'm president, I'll give them a better deal. And he said, we have to do that because if they, if they come to the peace table, the Democrats will win the election and we don't want them to win. Humphrey might win. And I didn't know that all these years. I thought we had totally failed and the war had gone on for another four years and all those people had died uh, and the refugees and everybody else and so the trauma of it. And when I wrote this, I found out. So I put that down as a su success. After that, I moved on to uh, Ronald Reagan, who uh, most people don't know anything about Reagan, people I go around the country and talk to, except that he has a sunny, had a sunny disposition and a smile and there's an airport named after him uh, in, in Washington. Uh, but uh, on the uh, domestic side, he was, of course, the guy that, as uh, uh, Ralph said, often tried to turn back the clock on civil rights, uh, that whole story, and tried to fire me. He did fire me, but it didn't stick because I sued him and won. 
for uh, for criticizing his civil rights policy, and he told a reporter uh, who told me that he said that I was served at his pleasure, and I wasn't giving him very much pleasure. Uh, so, uh, and we had lots of fights with him, and there was legislation passed on a major civil rights uh, problems that existed. And it looked like we were winning, uh, but in fact, he appointed a bunch of judges, which is what we have to look out for with Trump. And the judges ended up overturning some of the stuff uh, that we've gotten. You've got to keep your eyes on both of these things. But the fights that took place and the way they were organized strategically and the people who were involved uh, show that even when Reagan, who as far as I'm concerned, on the domestic side, there were a lot of things that were as bad as what this guy who's over there now uh, who tries to do, uh, you could overturn them. And then there was the Free South Africa movement, which some people here in this town and maybe some of you were involved in. And the Free South Africa movement was a major success because what we did was, at the request of the leaders in South Africa uh, who were in the movement, we were able to educate Americans about apartheid. Some of them didn't know anything about it and to have protests both at the embassy, at Shell Oil, at the Krugerrand dealers. Uh, we went to jail several times. Lots of people here in this town and around the country did. It was a big movement, but what we did is to work with members of Congress who were our allies to get legislation passed to get sanctions against uh, South African trade. And the sanctions did bite, uh, and eventually uh, apartheid. Uh, what we did is people all around the country uh, did on their campuses and in the chapters of Trans-Africa where we were involved, uh, and in foreign countries, in Europe, for example, uh, helped to end apartheid in South Africa. Things are not perfect in South Africa. They got all kinds of economic problems. But at least uh, Mandela got released, and I happened to be in South Africa demanding to see him in prison when they finally agreed to release him. So I happened to be there when he got out of prison. Some of you may have seen it on TV, and to meet with him when he and other people when he got out, uh, which was one of the happiest days of my life. So that was a successful movement. Um, it involved both marches, uh, demos, all kinds of guerrilla activities, and figuring out what to do to keep the media attention and all the rest of it. And then I move on to the, there are other uh, things in here about ACT UP and uh, the AIDS question during the Reagan administration. Now he didn't want to even talk about it until uh, Rock Hudson died, who was his friend. But he wouldn't even mention it, uh, even though there was a serious crisis. And both during his administration and Bush, all the argument, George Herbert Walker Bush, all of the arguments about uh, the, uh, the drug for AIDS, the, the pharmaceuticals, and who was going to finance it, and what the federal government was going to do. Reagan was awful uh, on those policies, and there were lots of protests. ACT UP had demonstrations all over the place uh, during that period. And the policies eventually changed, and at drug manufacturers. And the policy eventually uh, changed. Uh, the other thing that I do after that, I talk about during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, the uh, movement to get uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, which I think was one of the greatest and best organized social movements of uh, our time. Um, and um, it was that last day when those people, that girl climbed up the steps of the Capitol, and the other people who did, 
uh, was amazing, which was sort of the clincher on this. They knew how to, and it harkened back to when I was in the Carter administration, when Joe Califano, who was secretary, wouldn't issue the regs for Section 504, which is the Accommodating People with Disabilities Act, I think, Rehabilitation Act of 1973, uh, which was before, way before ADA. And he wouldn't sign the regs. It had been passed before we got there. Uh, and there were protests, and disabled people came into the building down at HEW to demand that he sign the regs. They went to his house, which is somewhere around here, uh, to demand that he do it. And I happened to be, I was running education in the Carter administration, and I happened to be sitting uh, up in his office with some other people when they were downstairs, and he was angry about them being in the building, and he was scared. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? We said, they're not going to do anything to you. <laughs> they just want you to sign the doggone regs. Uh, and uh, they stayed there and in uh, buildings uh, all over the country, uh, regional offices of HEW until they got the regs passed. So there have been these. Uh, also, during the Bush administration, George Herbert Walker Bush administration, uh, there were these demonstrations around the abortion issue. The marches, the, the pro-choice marches, are one example of a series of marches that had success. Sometimes marches don't. They're good for people to do and to mobilize people, but you don't see any policy change, especially. But with the pro-choice marches that were repeated uh, during that period, you can see in what the Supreme Court did in the cases. I remember in uh, Casey that uh, Scalia, I think it was, said that he didn't pay any attention to marches. He said that in his opinion. I think it was Scalia. He's dead, so I can say he said it. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I said to my students, well, if he didn't pay any attention to it, how did he know they were out there? Uh, and so that, those were uh, very important uh, during uh, George Herbert Walker Bush's administration. Uh, then you get another uh, friendly president. Everybody who was a progressive said, isn't it great that Bill Clinton got elected? Because we had Reagan, and then we had this guy, and now we got a Democrat who is uh, in office. And then we had this big fight about don't ask, don't tell. Uh, we had uh, fights about a lot of issues, uh, about driving while black and what the guidelines were, uh, what he did about poverty and about uh, social programs and welfare, and all of these. He was a friendly president. I call him the adaptable president. Uh, but in fact, uh, he had to be leaned on. Uh, he, what he said uh, about me all the time, and see, he's slick, Willie. He would say, uh, Mary Frances Berry, you know, when I always ask her whether I'm doing a good job, and she says, I'll give you about a C plus. And he says, that's okay, because it's her job to criticize me. And that was to get me not to criticize him. He was very smart about that. Uh, but uh, the protests that existed during his administration were not as aggressive as they were earlier during the Bush and the Reagan, in part because he was a Democrat. And people found it difficult uh, to mobilize effectively, in my opinion, which I stated uh, a lot of times to people during that period. But there was some. Globalization was a big issue. And that was the globalization uh, movement, especially in Seattle. At the meeting out there was the first time the social media was used effectively to organize people. After that, it just became routine. Uh, that that it happened. So he had issues about they wouldn't even let him speak uh, in Seattle, a, as I recall. 
Uh, then you had George uh, W. Bush, uh, who came into office after, in my opinion, stealing the election in Florida. Um, and I say that because I did hearings on it and uh, with people under oath, and I think that's what he did. Uh, but now I guess he's being rehabilitated. Nat 11 rehabilitated him. Now he's been uh, re, uh, re, uh, rehabilitated. Uh, the war, the Iraq war, is the major movement that we talk about during his administration. Now, what is it that I think we learn from all this stuff that I have here? The first thing I learned in going over it again is that it's important if you have a social movement to focus on policy and not people. In other words, hate Trump is not a social movement. Hate Trump may make us feel good, <laughs> and hate Trump may be the right thing to do, <laughs> but it's not a social movement, okay? Social movements, in my opinion, should have objectives. And one of the things they should have is a policy objective. And I don't care whether you're talking about one locally, where you're talking about the governor or the city council, or whether you're a legislature, or whether you're talking about the president of the United States. You should focus on policy. Focusing on people should only be a tool that you use every now and then to focus on the policy. The whole idea of we just don't like this person, whoever it is, uh, is not a social movement. That's the first thing. The second thing that we learn is that media is all important. If you do something and it's not covered by the media, you might as well not have done it because nobody will know you did it. So you have to figure out a way. And when I look at the kids now who are doing this stuff around gun control, they have so far been able to do different kinds of actions. It's unfortunate that you, those people, kids had to be murdered in that school in order for this uh, to take off. But they have been moving in different directions. You have to keep thinking of things to do to keep the media's attention. A change in tactics or real activities or when we did free South Africa. First it was at the embassy every day and getting arrested and carrying coffins up there and things. And then there was going to the Krugerrand dealer and telling them and staying in there and having them close it and then explaining to people with signs in the window what Krugerrands were. And then it was closing down Shell Oil's headquarters. Uh, you have to keep being um, uh, imaginative and creative in terms of what you do. And you also have to hook up with politicians. You have to find somebody who can carry a legislative message or something so that when your resistance works, you can get a kind of change that are possible if it, if it requires legislative change or a change in the courts or whatever it is. Uh, with some, you can always find one or two people. It may seem unlikely, but there are some people who are unlikely who you can do. There are some problems with social movements as I see them from all the ones that I have studied historically and been involved in. One is celebrity seekers. There are always people who come who are there not because they want to do anything, <laughs> but they want to be seen by the media as the leader of the movement or the person, the voice of the movement. What they really are looking for is a, either a book contract or a TV show or speeches or something. And the problem with that is that they fuzzy up the message. A message in a movement has to be clear and simple. It can't be complicated. Because if it's complicated, it takes too long to explain it. Um, you can't, you know, people can't wrap their minds around it and so on. And there are celebrity seekers. There are also people who just want to join up, which is fine. 
But sometimes they're not clear on what the message is either. I remember that in the anti-war movement. Once it got a lot of publicity and there were things all around the country, there were people in everywhere, all over the land, who wanted to join up, but they weren't sure, quite sure what it was we were trying to do. <laughs> and so we had to educate them about what we were trying uh, to do. So that's, but persistence, the most important ingredient of any kind of movement is persistence. You have to be persistent. You can't just, it's not a one-off where you just do something and then you go home and say, hey, wow. The other thing is to remember, even if you are persistent, that um, sometimes people get tired. I have to remember that because people have other things to do. They can't just keep doing this. When we did Free South Africa, we met it every day at my house for an hour and a, about an hour and a half. For a year and a half, we met at my house every morning uh, where they used to tease me because I never gave anybody anything to eat. So I said, go across the street and buy some cookies. Uh, and organized a protest every single day for a year and a half. That's a long time. And in between, to go and teach your class or do whatever you had to do, because we had jobs. Um, and then when Reagan vetoed the bill, the sanctions bill, we had to do it again to pass it over his veto. And we kept meeting and doing it over again. That is persistence, and a little group of people are doing it. So ingenuity, surprise, but persistence is really important. Uh, because also, your opponents always think you're going to get tired and that, oh, well, it'll go away in two days. We don't have to worry about it. Uh, as for Trump, now finally, we're in the era of Trump, and what does this all mean? It means that in American politics, we have what I call the push-pull of American politics. It goes one direction, and it goes another direction. We are in that period of negativity called Trump. Um, and politics in this period is important, that is voting, running for office, but it's not sufficient. It's important, but it is not sufficient. Um, protest is an essential ingredient of politics if you want to make change. Uh, people sometimes who think change is going to happen all by itself quote Theodore Parker and think they're quoting Martin Luther King when they say the arc of the moral universe is uh, long but it tends toward justice. That was Theodore Parker. He was a Unitarian minister in the 19th century who said that. And when Martin said it, he always gave him credit because he believed in credit giving. He would say, as Theodore Parker said, and then he would tell you. But other people, they think, you know, anyway. Uh, but uh, everybody who's been a leader has expressed that in different ways. A. Philip Randolph put it in a way that there's a quote in the beginning of the book where he said, justice is never given. Uh, it is exacted. It is exacted. Because freedom is never a final fact either, but an evolving process. And so what that means is even when you think you've won, you have to keep on. Because every time you win something, the people who don't like it, what are they doing? They're organizing to change it back the way it was. And if you just go home and sit down, then in fact, that's what they'll do. So it is not, it is an evolving process. When I was a student at Howard, uh, Jimmy Baldwin, uh, James Baldwin, Jimmy Baldwin used to come and talk to us. And it was before he wrote this book. 
But he used to tell us about the fire next time, you know. We, we would all sing the rainbow sign, you know, and uh, the water uh, was uh, first, and it would be the fire next time to take care of evil in the world. And then he wrote that book, which came out in 63, called The Fire Next Time. But one of the things that's important is to know that if you want to make social change, somebody has to go through the fire. Somebody has to. And the way I like to put it to students is that every generation has to make its own dent in the wall of injustice. Everybody has to. You got to do it if you want to make a social change. And so you can resist. It's been done in the past. It can be done now. And it will be done in the future. And there will always be negativity that you must push back against. Thank you very much. Sorry. Um, so I guess my uh, yep. question is about in 2016, we saw a lot of, uh, I guess, um, targeting of the progressive left uh, with, I guess, wedge issues to try and get them not to vote or to vote third or to waste their votes. And I'm wondering if that's a danger of social media that has to really be addressed by progressive movements in the future. Uh, or if it's just like a one-time thing? Well, the social media issue is a big one. I went to an ACLU national convo that Anthony Romero had after Charlottesville when there was a lot of ferment in the chapters about uh, what happened in Charlottesville and the role of the ACLU. And we had a big discussion about social media because on the one hand, you like the freedom of the Internet and you like, we like social media, but on the other hand, we know that all kinds of evil things can be perpetrated and perpetuated and perpetrated. And in fact, the question is, how do you have controls and regulations without interfering with freedom of expression? And, uh, you know, when it comes to freedom of expression, I'm a purist, so I have real problems trying to balance all these uh, different uh, issues. But we know that social media was used for nefarious purposes uh, during the uh, 2016 campaign and is, will be used from now on. That's just something, it's sort of like uh, when, when people are organizing and we talk about how easy it is now with social media to organize because you can communicate. And I say you've got to remember, though, that it's also easier to keep you under surveillance, <laughs> a lot easier than it used to be when we had mimograph machines with that, where we get blue ink or something on our hands <laughs> trying to do something, or putting out flyers. So I don't know. It's, I said to the ACLU that they need to sit down and think carefully through, is there something that we can do without it inhibiting freedom of expression, which we don't want to do. Um, young people do, uh, and the ones I teach, are not wary about social media and its uses. They just think, well, we're communicating, so what? <laughs> Say anything, whatever you feel, <laughs> or whatever you think, just put it out there. And I tell them, you know, you should be careful about what you put out there because People will read it, and they may not take it or look at it, and they may not take it the way you meant it. So I don't know what the answer is, but I 
know it's a very serious problem. Yes. I rise to say thank you. And of course, nobody is more qualified to write this book than you. And your, certainly your summary, I think, this evening demonstrates that. Uh, two things. With the march coming here on the 24th by all of the wonderful young people, um, the march in itself is empowering, I think. And this march, as I understand it, what you're saying, if it's backed up with good policy and objectives and continuing persistence will have real meaning. Right. right? If, if, you, if, it, if, the, if, if the activities continue, mm -hmm. you can't just, if you want Congress to pass something, you've got to have a long-term campaign. And mm -hmm. it takes a lot of committed people. And you have to be clear about what your objective is, too. And just, you know, whatever is the simplest thing you can say about what it is you're trying to get done, and just keep on pushing it and pushing it, and committed people have to keep on pushing and pushing it. Yeah. And that's what I want to reiterate it, so that uh, uh, young people, that and we should tell them all to, to read your book and, and fully understand what you're saying, because you're not against marches per se. Oh, no, I'm not uh, but, against oh, marches. Yeah, okay. Marches are... Marches are great. I, marches by a march, a march by itself. Is yes, going, and know, that's what I wanted to get march, clear. And you go right. home and say, well, we marched. Hey, change the policy. <laughs> okay. No, that, that comes through loud and oh, clear. I'm glad yeah. they're having this march. Right, me I too. I hope they have yeah. others. I hope they think of other ways to demonstrate and imaginative and creative tactics to use to perpetuate and to keep it going. And those of us that don't march much anymore certainly can contribute monetarily and otherwise, right. you know, and open their homes and Absolutely. stuff and provide spaces for people to sleep and rest. The other thing I wanted you to talk about was because in your lessons learned, you talk about uh, Plains Closemen and other people infiltrating marches and causing disturbances. And I wanted you to just give a couple examples of that from your experience. And again, helping people to understand that this should be expected and how you handle it. Well, it's hard to handle it because when someone gets the microphone, you know, Joe Madison was telling me this morning about the Sudan uh, a few years ago when they had this movement to try to end uh, slavery, actual slavery, not pretend slavery, mm -hmm, in Sudan. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy who I will name who decided this was an opportunity for him to get a platform. He didn't have anything to do with the protests. So every time there was an action, he would show up and would walk up and grab the microphone from whoever had it and start talking. And so the media finally thought he was the leader of the, of the movement. And they kept writing that he was the leader of the movement. And he had all kinds of crazy ideas about crazy because it wasn't consistent with what anybody was trying to do and it wasn't likely to get anything done about what that can do. It is also the case that when we were in the anti-war movement, there were a number of people who did things that were diversionary tactics in the end, which got the media to focus on how, you know, how outrageous their behavior was, <laughs> as opposed to focusing on the issue. Uh, so it's just something you have to be aware of and to just, you know, keep your... In the Free South Africa movement, what we did is to keep our plans 
closely to each, to mm -hmm. each other. When we met, we would talk about what we were going to do, and only those of us who were in the steering committee knew what we were about to do next, and nobody else knew. That's hard. And it also means that when you work in coalitions, you have the problem of building trust, and so people want you to share you know, whatever it is you're planning to do. So there's a balance that you have to have. So those are things. Thank you for that mm -hmm. strategy. Mm -hmm. Dr. Berry, over yeah. here. Hi. Hey. Thank you so much for your lifetime of work. I think a first step would be to buy your book and give it to at least one copy to each of the schools mm -hmm. where these kids are organizing to know the history mm -hmm. of how to get things done. My question is kind of a, a, a more political question, global question. Uh, last night, Joseph Califano was here talking about his book about the crisis oh, in democracy. Yes, you missed him by one day. Aww. You worked together, he right? He be here tonight, so yeah. he could have yeah. heard the pro yeah. about the protest. He doesn't want to remember that, anyway. He, <laughs> he, put, he put up a couple of very interesting metrics about uh, the low voter participation, especially in primaries in this country. And it seems to me that resistance is great, but President Obama said, don't get angry, vote. So how do, we, how do we engage the average citizen to vote and to realize that their vote can make a difference? Okay, here's, here's where I stand on voting. <laughs> that uh, the reason why we have turnout problems in this country, it's a big issue uh, for elections generally, even in Obama's second election, uh, the turnout was lower. Um, and um, in and, and the, and the first election, it was very much higher, but it uh, fell off. Um, and turnout in primaries, of course, is worse than it is in, in general elections. And in local elections, the very few people vote. When I did some research for a book that I wrote called Five Dollars and a Pork Chop Sandwich, <laughs> Vote Buying and the Corruption of Democracy, and talking to people, they uh, said that, first of all, candidates never did anything that they said they were going to do once they got elected. And one old lady down in Louisiana, Miss Williams, who's 90-something now, told me that she'd been voting since she was a girl. And that uh, the people always come through and say they're going to put a new roof on the school and they're going to do this and that and the other. And she said, they never do it. <laughs> so she said, I just decided that they're not going to do <laughs> what they say. Uh, so one of the things is to have candidates who don't make promises they can't even try to keep. <laughs> It's one thing if you try and you can't do it, and the other is to, when you can't, explain to people why you can't and be in connection with them so that they have some confidence that that process has something to do with him, ju them. Just saying to them, voting is a valuable right and you should go out and do it if there's no connection between what they're looking for doesn't do anything. The other thing is to explain to them that once you vote, then what you need to do is put pressure on the people you vote, which is what movements are about, and how you do that. And tell them that you have to do that. Don't make them think that if you just vote, and if the person gets elected, you can guarantee that X is gonna be done. Be honest with them about the need for social movements as an essential ingredient of your politics. Then if they don't, then they know that they failed to do something. But if they think that they don't need to do that or they had never occurred to them that they needed to do it and just wait till the, another election, we're not going to have, um, we're not going to have uh, increases in turnout. One of the ideas um, that someone in Chicago came up with was giving people incentives to vote. I don't mean 
incentives to vote for any particular person. But if you went to vote and you got your little I voted sticker, that when you came out, you got a lottery ticket or something, or you got a free cup of coffee at Starbucks or whatever it was, uh, or that you had, as they do in Australia, at every precinct, you had sort of a social hour where the neighbors would all come and vote at the precinct, and the people stand around, talk to each other, and you know, with their neighbors, and uh, after they voted, uh, and it had nothing to do with telling you to vote for, but it was just a have a gathering of people who did this to make it a social occasion. So there are ideas to do it, but the main thing is better candidates and also explaining to people what the process is and what you have to do. Yes. Um, good evening. Uh, about a year ago, I heard Colin Powell's chief of staff, Colonel Larry Wilkerson, predict uh, a coming war with Iran a couple mm. of years down the road. And since that time, it's kind of looking like he might be right. It seems like there is a war coming against Iran. With this much uh, lead time, uh, how, what, what kind of action could you take to dissuade the administration from, uh, from declaring war against Iran? And just recently, we saw this president fire 59 cruise missiles at Syria. I'm not sure he knew he was even firing them in Syria. I, I think he said uh, it was uh, Iraq first, and the commentator said no, it was Syria. And that was meant with almost celebration. He was complimented for being presidential. So with that kind of possible reward out there, how do we slow down the momentum that Colonel Wilkerson predicted? Well, if, if Colonel Wilkerson is right, and I hope he's wrong, <laughs> uh, but and if you believe he's right, and if you care about the issue, you ought to be organizing some kind of movement to make clear to the administration that a large part of the public does not agree that it should do whatever it is that you think they're going to do. Right now, I'm sure Trump doesn't know that you think that. <laughs> or that anybody thinks that because he hasn't paid any attention. What you have to do is disruption. Social movements are about disruption. Enough to get the attention of people, to get them to do something. We had, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. With George W. Bush, uh, it didn't keep him from the Iraq war uh, and having Colin Powell lie about it. Uh, but um, there was a strong uh, movement at that time. I think it came a little late uh, because uh, uh, the signs were all there that it was going to happen uh, before uh, Colin Powell's uh, speech. But if you really think that there are these uh, uh, thunderclouds on the horizon, then the thing to do is to organize an anti-war movement. Now, Fannie Lou Hamer, I was in Jackson, Mississippi uh, the other day at the Civil Rights Museum. I wanted to see it. And if you ever get a chance, you should go see it. It is, in terms of artifacts and things that they have available and the text and the way it's explained, it is fantastic. The one here, the Smithsonian Museum, is in a beautiful building and it has lots of nice things and it's a great job and I worked for years with other people to get it, or to try to get it. But um, this one, which is about Mississippi and the civil rights movement, is with all the people who've given things to the museum and all the people who come to it, it is just, and Fannie Lou Hamer has a quote that's on the wall. She says, 
the thing to remember about our movement was uh, it, it would be great to have a lot of people, but if only, we only have three people, that's still a movement. So, okay. All right. Yes. Good evening. Um, I'm a journalism and philosophy major up the street at AU, but I'm also a student activist. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on a common criticism that student activists um, get, especially today, is that you're too young, you don't know what you're talking about, and they're very much dismissed by, like, even by other, like, official activists and just in the media and things like that. So I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I don't think you're ever too young. Um, it was children who made uh, some of the greatest advances during the modern civil rights movement. It was children in Birmingham who were bitten by dogs in the street. It was children in Nashville, including my 10-year-old brother, who marched his classmates out of school and went downtown to sit in with Diane Nash and the sit-inners and with the teachers out there screaming at them, come back in the school, don't go, come back in the school. And they went anyway. Uh, and it made the news, and it worried my mother because she didn't know where he was. And he was in jail because they had arrested him. But he was 10, and the other kids who were there all around the country. Uh, V.P. Franklin, who is a professor at UC uh, Riverside, historian, has an exhibit on the children in the civil rights uh, movement and what they did. And the other night uh, in New Orleans, I listened to the sister. Uh, remember the four little girls that were killed in Birmingham? Well, one of the, the sister of Addie uh, was in the, in the same uh, episode, and she was blinded, but she wasn't killed. And uh, in one eye, and one eye was uh, it's been fixed. She's got sight in one eye now. Um, and I had never heard her tell her story before about what happened there. They were all kids. There were kids everywhere doing things. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I was involved in social work. I was in, uh, in Anniston, Alabama at the bus station when Arthurine Lucy tried to integrate the University of Alabama and they called out state police and everything and they were up there calling people the N-word and saying, you know, get out of here and all that. Uh, so you're never too young. And the other day I had my friend uh, who is a poet uh, was down in New Orleans and there was a protest about women's uh, wages uh, in the uh, entertainment industry and tips, which is an issue because uh, they make very low incomes and they had a march. And his 10-year-old daughter was with him and I said, why don't we join the march? So she made her own sign <laughs> and we went out and we got in the march. And she was so happy because she said, it's my first protest, it's my first protest. So you're never too young. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your um, talk so far. I just, I can't help but feel that the movements to increase gun control are just completely futile, um, given that we're going up against the NRA and a lobbyist movement that essentially has so many politicians in their pockets. So, <laughs> so the question is like, can, can protests and media attention overcome like just pure monetary incentives that politicians have not to make actual change. Yeah. How do we overcome kind of lobbyist groups that I feel like are taking control of our government because they are kind of multi-million dollar industries through just our protests and our kind of control of the media? And when we did the Free South Africa movement, and this applies to most kind of protests, the President of the United States was opposed to dealing with the issue of apartheid and opposed making any change and supported the South Africa 
our apartheid regime. American corporations had billions of dollars invested in the mines in South Africa, in the factories, in everything in South Africa, and weren't interested in doing anything to change the system of apartheid. The media in the United States at first supported not doing anything, maybe some halfway step, or, you know, one of them would say, but, you know, you're just silly to be thinking that you can have a movement that's going to change all of that. And they had lobbyists galore here in Washington, lobbying on the Hill, paying, giving campaign contributions, doing everything to people. And as I told you, it took a year and a half <laughs> of people going to jail. I mean, every day at the embassy in that time, there were sometimes big groups of people who went to jail and sometimes celebrities who went to jail. Muhammad Ali came, uh, Michael Jackson came, uh, Rosa Parks came, and for the first time she made a speech when she got there. People usually have a wave and say, there's Rosa Parks. And we said, no, you're gonna speak. And she spoke and spoke eloquently there in front of the embassy. And we did that every single day. And in the end, we won. And you would say that we couldn't win. You would say that the people with the Americans with Disabilities Act, if you had started off at the beginning, you would have said, these people are never gonna get this done. Why don't they just, you know, go home <laughs> and shut up? But you got, if you start off with the premise that you can't do anything, then you know what? You can't do anything. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has. It never will. Right. And so what you have to do is you have to try. And, you know, I don't care what people say. I always say the time to do something is when nobody will do it. That's what I always think. And I'm never happier than when I am involved in a struggle for justice with a group of like-minded people. It's a high. It's better than smoking marijuana, uh, anything else that you could do. So you have to try. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I feel like I've been in the, in the right place at the right time just now. Uh, thank you for your talk and your wisdom. Uh, and I feel like I would be remiss to ask, if, if I didn't ask, uh, I'm from out of town. <laughs> I'm here for a conference. And I work for an organization that uh, uh, works on behalf of immigrants and um, their, uh, their rights and their um, voice. But the, the issue is that, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit, there's, there is a truly true marginalization when it comes to these, this group of people, and they're very diffuse in some sense and very, you know, centralized in another. However, there's a real fear of deportation if they speak up. There's a real fear of organization because of the resistance that is, is present at this point. Um, you know, we, we do all we can, and uh, we do a pretty good job, but there's starting to be kind of a, a movement away from uh, speaking up. So how do we continue to give a voice to the people who truly out of fear and perhaps realize fear can't speak for themselves. Well, people ought to, who are sympathetic to their concerns ought to speak for them. One of the reasons why we did Free South Africa is because the people in South Africa who were getting killed and who were in detention, there were thousands of people. There were children killed, there were, you know, people just incarcerated for long periods of time and they couldn't speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. They couldn't. 
And so there were problems we could have focused on in this country. There are enough of them. But the idea is speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. So if there are people who are sympathetic to the cause of people who cannot speak for themselves, then they ought to engage in the kind of movement activities that I'm talking about. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate right. it. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.